asked a question on Wednesday night, which I'll, I'll pose again here this morning, um, which leads us a little bit into what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. That is, imagine, imagine if you had believed your entire life that you were saved, that you were going to go to eternity, that you had eternal life, that there was good things for you after death, that you were going to be accepted by God. You'd lived your whole life and you had believed that to be true. And then the day comes and you die and you stand, shall we say, at the gates of heaven, ready to be entered in, and God says to you, no, no, I haven't accepted you. That would be a tragic, tragic moment. How could something like this happen? How could it happen that you could live your whole life believing that you would be accepted by God, being told perhaps by many others around you that you would be accepted by God, and then at that time find not to be accepted by God? Maybe, maybe you were born into a godly family or a religious family and just followed along, and in following along with the traditions and the practices and the, the way your family lived, maybe that uh, made some assumptions on your part. Maybe at some point in your life as a, a Christian, you made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. At some point, you, you've said to Jesus, I believe you. And that became the moment that you thought and everybody told you, yep, that's it. That because of that moment, that's, that's it. You're going to be accepted by God. Maybe, maybe your church or your religious institution told you you're accepted by God because you've carried out this rite or you've been baptized or done this ritual. And so based on those things, you were assured and even your own mind and by others that you would be accepted by God. That's a tragic truth for, for very many that very, very many will experience, live their whole life believing themselves to be accepted by God and then sadly find in the end that they never were, living in a false hope. It makes passages like we're going to come to this morning and read in just one moment very important and particularly personally important for me. It was passages like this that drove me to more deeply understand what the gospel is and, and how to share the gospel and what it means to believe the gospel. It's why I spend as much time, if you will, sharing the gospel and speaking the gospel to professed believers as I do to unprofessed people because we want to know that what we have believed is true, that I am not believing a false story. Let's read this morning from John chapter 5 and verse 40 through verse 47. We're here at the, the tail end of a conversation that Jesus has been having with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. It began because Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day uh, that's boiled over into an argument about whether he has the authority to do that. And Jesus says he does because he is, he is God. And then that's uh, come through a whole conversation of what that means for him to be God and why you need to believe him. 
And here it gets uh, to the pointy end of that conversation. And to the Pharisees, Jesus speaks these words in verse 40 of John chapter 5. And ye will not come to me, that ye might have life. I receive not honour from men, uh, but I know you, that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. How can ye believe which receive honour one of another, and seek not the honour that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, if we come to your word, we pray for, for clarity, we pray for, for confidence from the truth, for those of us who have taken it to heart, we pray for open eyes and receptive hearts to the gospel this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So why did I ask the question or make the statement at the beginning? What if you had believed your whole life that you were accepted by God only to find you weren't? Because that's who we're talking about here in this passage. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel who had spent their whole life believing they were accepted by God. Telling each other we are accepted by God. And Jesus comes and tells them, no, you're not. You're not accepted by God. No matter all of the things you have done, all of the rituals you have followed, all of the, the study of God's word that you have, have delved into and how deeply you know it and, and everything you've done, no matter how many times you've been baptized for repentance and no matter how many times you stood on the street corners and prayed and the sacrifices you've offered, all of those things which you thought were going to make you acceptable to God did not do it. That is a hard place to be in. Many people often accuse Jesus of being very harsh on the Pharisees. Some even say he was overly harsh and critical of the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. One of the reasons he speaks so harshly, and he, he speaks in, in words like this sometimes to these religious leaders, is because they are in a very, very dangerous position as far as Jesus is concerned. They believe that they are accepted by God. And in their belief and in their system of belief of what they think makes them acceptable by God, they are telling each other, you're accepted, you're accepted, oh thank you, I'm accepted. And they're, they're talking amongst themselves and that's what he says, you give honour one to another and you'll listen to them but you won't listen to me. So as they're listening to one another, tell them, yes, you've done this, you're accepted by God. Yes, you've done that, you're accepted by God. We're accepted by God because we're God's people. And in that echo chamber... They haven't heard the truth. And Jesus comes and he speaks into that and says, no. Because not only are they telling one another that they are accepted by God, and not only are they amongst their own religious elite believing they're accepted by God, 
They're taking that very same truth, those very same things that they believe to be true, and those very rituals they're doing, and they're telling others and teaching others that that's the way to be accepted by God. So it's not just a small clique of religious elites, but now they're telling everyone else, no, to be accepted by God, you need to follow these laws, and you need to do these rituals, and you need to offer these sacrifices, and you need to say these prayers, and do all these things. And so what they are believing, which is wrong, they're teaching others the wrong thing and leading others into a place of damnation. So hard passages like this, although they're hard and although they're difficult and, and even deeply confronting to many of us, this is loving. This is the love of Jesus Christ. So how is this loving? He's been harsh. He's already told them in places, you know, like verse 38, you think you have God's word in you. You do not have God's word in you. God does not abide in you. It says in, in verse 40, you, you won't come to me. These are, these are harsh words, but how can it be loving? Because these harsh words are spoken not just in the spur of the moment and not just uh, in, in the immediate meeting of these people. The people Jesus is speaking to are the people who have seen Jesus do the miracles. The people that Jesus is speaking to here have heard what he has said. They've listened to the sermons. They've watched him speak with people, interact with people, show the love of God. They've watched him prove himself to be the Son of God. And in all of that, in everything that they have seen and heard and experienced with Jesus, Jesus is right. He says, you have heard everything I've had to say, and you will not come. Jesus is explicitly telling them, you're not accepted, no matter how religious you are, no matter what you've done. You've heard everything I've said. You've heard the truth. You've heard me say the gospel. You've heard me raise from the dead and show I have the power of life and death in my hands. And you still choose your own path. We hope and we pray that they hear the warning and that they believe. And when we come into Acts, we find that many of them do, in fact, believe. Many of the religious leaders will come to believe, but many, many will not. Among them, at least at the beginning, a man named Saul, who because he is so deeply uh, ingrained in his belief, will kill anyone that says they believe Jesus. They stubbornly clung to their own ideas. Verse 40, and ye will not come to me that ye might have life, is the great tragedy. Passages like this have been used to drive me into a personally deeper understanding of God's work in salvation. You see, we preach the gospel not just for the irreligious. The gospel is not just for those who, who are the, you know, the, the, the God-hating Satanists. We preach the gospel to the religious and the irreligious alike. We preach the gospel to, to the Christian and the non-Christian. Because we all need to hear the truth of what Jesus has to say and who he is. Rejecting Jesus comes in a lot of forms. It doesn't just come in the outright rejection or refusal to see who he is. It comes in many different ways. 
And here, as we work our way through this passage briefly this morning, we will find uh, a number of reasons. Jesus gives us a few reasons and some of the symptoms of why people reject him as Savior. Why would anybody reject Jesus as Savior? Now, as a believer, and as, as many of us sit here genuinely believing Jesus Christ is our Savior, and absolutely certain because of what we've believed and what the Bible tells us about what will take place, because we've genuinely believed Jesus Christ. As a believer, as we sit here and we listen to these things, they help us under, understand the nature of the spiritual battle that we are in. What is it that we're, we're facing when we share the gospel? It reminds us that the the unbeliever, religious or not, isn't our enemy, nor our project, but the objects of our love, to genuinely share what they need. So there is also encouragement in these hard words. For like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, he lays out some of the things that, that describe the person who is unsaved, and he says to us, such were some of you but you are washed, but you are clean. So we, we look on people who have yet to believe, people who, like the Pharisees here, refuse to come. And we look out on a world which lives as if they refuse Jesus Christ, and indeed do, and we see not the enemy out there. We don't live in a us-versus-them mentality. But there are people out there who need to know Jesus Christ, who need to see the truth. So why do people reject Jesus? Just a few thoughts this morning on that as we look through here. Firstly, people reject Jesus because sin rules their heart. Verse 40 says, And you will not come to me that you might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you that you have not the love of God in you. That is, your verse 40 tells us that their disbelief of Jesus is not a, a by-the-side thing. It's not a mistake. It's not a misunderstanding. They choose to reject Jesus. You will not come. It is a deliberate rejection of Jesus. We will not come. The responsibility of rejecting Jesus lies on each and every one of us. On each of us as individuals. Which also means the consequences lie on us too. In spiritual matters, we are naturally hard-hearted and rebellious. Psalm 53, which is quoted by Paul in the New Testament, tells us that there are none that seek God. There are, are none that chase after him, but rather we choose to reject him. We'll talk about some of the reasons why throughout this morning. But how do we reject him? We ignore him, don't think about him. We just live our lives and go, oh, God doesn't matter. When it gets, when it gets down to the, the pointy end of life, well, I'll start thinking about that sort of thing. Or, or I'll, I'll think about these later. I don't need to think about God. Now I've got businesses to run. I've got families to sort out. I've got things to do. We'll think about him later. I don't want to think about that now. For many, we reject him because we just assume we don't need a savior. I'm okay. 
The things I've done are all right. In the end, my good works are going to be just enough and it's going to be all right. We assume we don't need a saviour. For some, we will outright reject him. We'll just say, no, I don't believe it. It's ridiculous. Refuse to believe Jesus. We make excuses or we seek temporal pleasures. Many of us will choose not to believe him because we set our demands on God. God, I'll believe you if you meet this demand or if you meet this expectation that I have of what I think you should be. And when God doesn't meet exactly what we think he should be, we choose to reject him. Or we believe as long as I've said the magic words, God will be obliged to accept me. There is never, ever a legitimate I don't know. I didn't know. No one will ever be able to stand before God and when he asks essentially the question, why should I let you into heaven? Did you believe me? Why didn't you believe Jesus? And say, I didn't know. There is never a time where God's going to say, oh, okay. That excuse never flies with God. Even the person told all their life that they've been saved is without excuse. Because the truth is, we believe what we want to believe. And if we want to believe that my good works or that my life or whatever I choose to do is enough, that's what I'm going to believe. Despite what may be true. And so as Jesus says, when we reject him, when we do not come... We do not have life. By rejecting Jesus, you reject life. This is what he came to give. This is why he came, to give life. That's what all the miracles have been about. To show that he has the power to give life. Life is in Jesus and you receive life by coming to him. So sin rules our heart and that we deliberately reject Jesus, which leads us to perhaps a more theological point, if you will, which we call the depravity of people, our depravity. These people, as we look here, and many of us, Jesus says to them, you're religious, but there's no love in you. You do all the right things, but you don't love anyone. They look the part. These Pharisees and religious leaders look the part. They, they faithfully attend worship. They knew the scriptures. They knew them very well. They taught the scriptures. They prayed often. They were not ashamed to talk about God. So on the outside, they, they looked the part, but it was all exterior. Now, those exterior things aren't bad, of course. Faithfulness and holiness, these are, are good things. But the problem was they believed the exterior was enough. That doing the right things was enough. There was no inward godliness. It was all an act. Even worse was they believed the exterior was the most important. As long as they looked right. But God's love was not in them. The treatment of the lame man is clearly an example of that. Good works on the outside, but God's love was not on the inside. The tragedy is when we put our hope in a good exterior, 
that's all we have is the appearance of goodness. And that is not just a Catholic problem. That's a problem for all of us. Because we are riddled with sin. That's what we mean by depravity. Depravity means that we are completely filled. By our nature, we are sinful people. That that is who we are, and we cannot change that. That's why God's love is not in them. Paul describes it this way, as blindness, having the understanding darkened, being alienated, separated, divided, rejected from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. When we talk about the depravity of our nature, it means that that every part of me is corrupted by sin. It does not mean that I am as evil as I could possibly be. So we're, we're not all Hitlers and serial killers and murders and terrorists. It doesn't mean that we're all the most wicked thing that we could ever be. It means that every part of my being is corrupted, is touched, is influenced by sin. The extent of sin goes, the Bible tells us that all of us have sinned. And that because all of us have sinned, we're told that we are all guilty before God. And because we are all sinners and because we are guilty before God, that estranges us from God or separates us from God and then puts us in a place where we are enslaved by sin. So why do people reject Jesus? We're sinful. Secondly, self fills their mind. Verse 43, I am come in my Father's name and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Self fills our mind. We have a desire for glory. Desire to raise up self, to lift myself up, to raise myself up in pride. That is essentially what sin is. We can describe sin in a lot of ways and describe how it looks, but at the heart of what sin is, when we talk about this word sin, essentially what we're meaning is pride. That is, I believe that I am all I need, that I believe I'm the one worthy of worship, at the heart of it. And so I worship myself over God. If you could find a way to be accepted by God, and fulfill all of your desires, you'd take it. So if there was a way that you could find in this world where I could have everything I desire fulfilled, so I could please myself, and in pleasing myself and finding every joy I want, and that would make me acceptable with God, that would be the quickest thing I ever chose in my entire life. Because it would get me what I want. Our entire society is built around that very thought. Let me get what I want. Let me fulfill my desires. Make me feel good about myself. We assume so many of our, our issues are related to loving ourself. You know, that's why social media companies, and, and I know you know this, that's why social media companies invented the like button. 
because it makes us feel good about ourselves when somebody pushes that like button. It boosts my self-esteem. Makes me feel good about myself. We want to be told how good we are. We're looking for it. The tragedy is far too many, far too many Christians and far too many churches are catering to this and, and telling us that the Bible is indeed all about me and about making me feel good about myself. And so like the Pharisees here, we measure ourselves against each other. I'm as good as they are and they tell me how good I am and we're better than they're. So we pat each other on the back. We want our five minutes of fame. And we keep telling each other how good we are. We have our own mutual adoration society. If you tell me how good I am, I'll tell you how good you are. Oh, brother, you're so holy. I love how often you pray. Oh, but brother, you know the Bible so well. You're so good at that. And so we tell each other how good we are. And we puff ourselves up in our own adoration. Jesus says to them, how can I be glorified as Lord when you're seeking the glory? You're telling each other how good you are and how, how full of glory you are. And while you're telling each other how good you are, you're not saying how glorious God is. And we're devoted, because of this, to imposters. We reject Jesus. We're always looking for someone who will tell me what I want to hear. Paul writes to Timothy and says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Don't, don't tell me a sinner, that I'm a sinner. Tell me I can live an immoral lifestyle and still be a Christian that I can neglect my family and pursue my own passion and still be a Christian. Tell me I can do and be whatever I want to be and just take Jesus along for the ride. Tell me that, because that's what I really want. Inevitably, in any of those things, we will realize that Jesus doesn't fit what we want. And so in the end, we reject him. Jesus doesn't like to go along for the ride. It's not what he's about. It's not who he is. And in the end, we realize that. And we reject. So in rejecting Jesus, we replace him. We were created, every single one of us, with an innate need to worship. It's in the depths of who we are. And when we reject Jesus, the one we were created to worship, we then find someone else to worship. Ourselves. And when we replace Jesus with ourselves, we look for someone who will help us worship ourselves. The world is full of imposters. John, in his epistle, First uh, John, calls them antichrist. This is the opposite of Christ. And they're everywhere. The world, he says, the world is full of antichrists. 
And we see them in a thousand different ways. We see them in, in famous celebrities who tell us how we can worship ourselves and, and be rich and famous and, and wonderful. We see it in word, faith, and prosperity preachers who tell us that we can have whatever we want as long as we have faith in some God. We see it in the Pope and we see it in Eastern religious telling us we're essentially good inside. We, we see it in politicians and we, we see it in, in scientists. We see them everywhere. Somebody around everywhere, in every field and in every way, is telling us what we want to hear. And when we reject Jesus, we will listen to the first person who tells me what I want to hear about me. Anyone and everyone that will feed our desire for self. Why do we follow imposters? Why do we follow anyone other than Jesus? Because they tell us what we want to hear. Perhaps some of us want to escape the reality of this world, the hardness of it, the difficulties of it. So we listen to someone who's going to tell us that everything is going to be all right. Or maybe some want to get all of they can out of this world. And so we listen to someone who says, I can worship myself by gaining all I can. We reject Jesus because we're sinful and we're self-centered. Thirdly, we reject Jesus because we're settled in our works. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom you trust. Here they're following the, the, the law. They're doing the right thing. They are righteous or right or good in their own eyes. To these men, the reason Jesus brings up Moses to them is Moses had the law, things they should follow, and so they, they believed that if they kept the law, they would please God, that that was what God wanted, to keep the law, and if they kept the law, they would be saved by that. Today, we might change it and say it in, in other ways. Perhaps you know, so many of us aren't bound to the law like the Jews were. We might say things like, my, my good works will save me. What I do, I'll do enough good and, and that will be enough. That is, so instead of us saying, I'm going to follow the Ten Commandments, we'll say, well, I'll be moral and I'll, I'll follow the golden rule and do good to others as they do good to me and I'll, I'll try and, and you know, fill shoeboxes for the poor and needy and I'll do all these things and if I do enough of these good things, that's enough to be pleasing. Or maybe we're clinging on to religious rites, like I said a prayer once. Because I said the prayer once, that'll do it. Or I, I believe the Bible, like there's, there's, I've grown up and I, I believe it, I, I think there's good stuff in there, I believe the Bible. We think we're a lot better than we are. And so we cling to our own self-righteousness. I am good enough. And we genuinely believe we are. Raising our own status. You see the self-centeredness in that? Yeah, I can keep the law of Moses. Yeah, I can do enough. I can do enough to please a God who is absolutely perfect. I can do that. The self-centeredness, the, the pride in that, in all of those things, who sets the standard? Who says you have met enough of the law to reach there? Who says you've done enough charity work for it to be considered good? 
Who sets the standard? Where is the line? Who draws that line? Well, I do. If I think it's good enough, well, then God must think it's good enough. And it sounds ridiculous when I say it, but that's what we believe, and it's how we live. We're still thinking too highly of myself. How do I think I have the right to tell God what is good enough? And so, they are damned by their own works. The very things that they thought would save them are the very things that condemn them. The requirement of the law, usually when we think of the law about what's good and bad, or we try and determine what is, what is, what is good and what is bad, we, we very often still in our culture have this idea of the Ten Commandments in, in mind. Particularly some of the end ones, you know, you, you shall murder, don't, don't lie, don't steal, don't be envious of other people, and we have these sorts of ideas in our mind. We think through those things, we find that they're really not enough. Because we usually think of the external evidences. Oh yeah, I haven't killed anyone. Uh, and, you know, and sometimes I get a little jealous, but I've never been you know, like genuinely envious of someone where I wanted their, their bad because of what they had. Or, uh, you know, I, I don't really steal. I'm pretty upright like that. We usually think of the external evidences. But Jesus says it's, 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 more, it's more than that. And so in places like Matthew 5, Jesus says things like, you heard it that was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. And whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now we're getting serious, aren't we? So Jesus says, no, no, it's not just whether you go out and you take a knife or you take a gun and you stab someone and kill them to death. He says, no, that's, that's not what it says. He says, if you're angry... You're unjustifiably angry with anyone. You have broken that commandment. Well, now I can't escape that because I know that's true of me. But it's not just that. It's stealing. It's adultery. You don't even have to. All you have to do is just, just look and lust. You've broken the commandment. Well, that's our society. We can't escape it. God's standards are far higher than we think. Far more devastating than we want to realize. Reaching for the unreachable. To a completely holy God. To a God who is absolutely perfect. Who cannot stand anything under perfection. Anything that breaks his holy moral code, anything at all, to a God that is completely holy, our good is not good enough. There is, to, you know, my dad used to say, close enough is only good in horseshoes and hand grenades. If you get close enough with a grenade, it'll do okay. If you get close enough with a horseshoe, you win the game. Doesn't work like that with God. God doesn't understand the phrase close enough. 
It's all or it's nothing because he is perfect in every way. So finally, people reject Jesus because we're sinful, because we're selfish, because we're settled in our own works, and finally, because the scriptures aren't believed. Verse 46, for had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? Because the Bible, the scriptures, direct to Jesus. They are the record of Jesus. The same person who wrote the law, you can boil it down to the Ten Commandments and just call it that if you, you like, but the same person who wrote that also wrote about Jesus. The man who wrote the Ten Commandments was the one who wrote down for us the very first promise of a Savior. The man who wrote the Ten Commandments was also the one who wrote to us about how God interacted with Abraham and Isaac to reveal in part the substitution of Jesus Christ. The same one who wrote the law and the of the law the Ten Commandments is the one who told us about the prophet. The one who would come and save from sin. This is the role of the Bible. This is the role of scriptures. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. God never intended your good works and the law to make you good enough for God. They were to show you that you needed God. All your good deeds can't save you. Only Jesus can. So when we reject that, we are deceiving ourselves. Reaching for other answers. People will look everywhere else for answers to these questions of immortality and eternity. We'll look to science and medicine and technology. We'll look to human experience and we'll look to tradition and we'll look a thousand different places to find the answers that we want to hear. When all along, just like these men here that Jesus is speaking to, the answer is right in front of us. Jesus. People still think, at least in part, that Jesus was a a good person, an honorable person. In fact, even recently, people are, are appealing to, to Christians based on their understanding of Jesus as being loving and caring, yet will still refuse to believe what he did and what he said. People reject Jesus because they're sinful, selfish, settled, and don't believe the scriptures. And as I said at the beginning, so I say at the end here, we're reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, for such were some of you. But you've been saved. So as a believer, despite the fact that people all around us are refusing Jesus, you were one of them once. You were a person who refused Jesus. So never give up hope. What's, what's the difference? How can we say with confidence 
that that's what I was? How can we know for certain? It's by God's grace we laid down our pride and we saw that I'm not good enough, that I need Jesus. We stopped listening to the voices telling us that we were okay, telling us that we were all right. And when we stopped listening to the voices telling us that everything was okay, we started to hear the word of God and Jesus say that we could come because we're not okay. We believe that Jesus was the Son of God who could forgive my sin. Who could make right what I could never make right. Then, Jesus sanctified us. Which is a Bible word which means he set us apart for himself. He made us his very own. This isn't a sermon to get you to doubt your salvation, but to give us confidence. If you've believed the scriptures, if you have come to Jesus alone for salvation from sin, he has given you life. Do you believe you're a sinner? If you answer, yes. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins? If you answer yes. Do you believe Jesus rose again from the third third day from the dead? Yes. Believing all of that, do you want to follow him? If the answer to all those questions is yes, you're a Christian. A real one. Not living for your own self. Maybe you've heard all of this before. Perhaps you've even said you you believe it. But really, you know, I'm still trusting in myself. I'm still hanging on to the things of doing the right thing, of coming to church and following the right way. I read my Bible, I act right, I go to church, I I do religious stuff. Don't be like these Pharisees, don't be like these religious rulers. Hearing the truth, but refusing to pursue it, and instead pursuing your own way. So in a world where people reject Jesus, what do we do? As believers, what do we do? Don't hide the gospel. Speak it clearly. Preach Jesus. Let Jesus shine the light in their hearts. Pray for boldness. Pray for courage in the Holy Spirit to be used by God to shine the light of the gospel into a world that refuses to see. Don't fear rejection. Live for Christ. If you're going to preach Christ, let them see what that really means. If I'm going to say you need Jesus, 
live as if you need Jesus. If you haven't believed Jesus this morning, would you believe him today? We're going to close in prayer in just, just one moment. And then we're going to sing a song, a song of response. And when we sing this song of response, you're, you're welcome to come forward and to pray. You're welcome to stay in your own seat and, and pray. You're, or just listen to the words or not sing and just contemplate what we've heard. You can pray and ask God's forgiveness yourself right where you're at. Or you can ask the person next to you if they can help you. Or you can come ask me and say, Brian, can you, can you show me how I can know more? about this Jesus so I can truly know that I will go to heaven. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the importance of the words you have laid before us in your scriptures. And I pray that you can take my, my feeble attempt at speaking these words and use them for your good and for your glory. May they encourage us as believers to be reminded of the truth, to be more deeply grounded in the truth, to remember what you have saved us from. And, O oh Lord, if there's someone here this morning who does not know you as their Savior, I pray this morning that you would have opened their eyes to see the gospel, to see their need for Jesus, and not reject him, but reject our own ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.